For two Sundays we've been in the story of the woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John. And for two Sundays more, uh, Bryce Butler will be in the pulpit next week, but for the uh, Sunday after that, God willing, we'll this Sunday and in two weeks we'll spend, God willing, two more Sundays, so four weeks altogether in this amazing layered story and in many ways still just be scratching the surface. But although we've been there for two weeks, we've not heard the whole story, so this Sunday uh, I thought we'd look at the entire sweep of the story as it comes to us in the fourth chapter of John, the third through the 42nd verses. Give attention to this, the hearing and the reading of God's word. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to everlasting life. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Go, call your husband and come here. I have no husband. You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. At this point the disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. 
And no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said. But we believe for ourselves, we have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We have been looking uh, these two weeks, and now I'm planning two weeks more, in this text that speaks at its heart of worship. God is seeking worshipers. We said this is the reason we exist, the purpose of our living, the reason we breathe. And that in this amazing story, we are told that God is seeking worshipers. Not worship, or at least I don't want to overdraw this point, but the text says true worshipers, people who worship. He pursues them. He seeks them. In the preceding weeks, we made two big points just quickly. We saw that in Jesus going through Samaria, he set a precedent that his word and his gospel is going to know no national barriers or boundaries. And This week, almost 2,000 years after Jesus himself visited Samaria, we are sending out a team to participate in the fact that we understand that Jesus' mission and his gospel is for every tongue and tribe and nation. His people, his church, are not to recognize on the ultimate level national barriers or boundaries. Then we saw Jesus' unfailing love to people in his pursuit in this loose, adulterous Samaritan woman, another worshiper of the living God. He pursues and approaches her with a request for kindness and the quickening of her curiosity 
and the kindling of a desire in her heart and the quickening of her conscience. All this in the interest of making her a worshiper. And in that, we saw that the context of worship is not a mythical escape from reality, but it has its roots in the real world, in failures, in adultery, in uh, racial animosities, in brokenheartedness, in the fallen world in which we live. Worship does not exist independently of an awareness of the human condition of sin. And that's where we left the story last week. So that's brought us to the heart of the passage, which has to deal with Jesus' explicit teaching on worship. This woman and Jesus met together at this well in what could be called a turning point in history. The debate about the location of where God would meet his people, whether in the temple in Jerusalem or on this mountain nearby, was about to become obsolete. Verse 21 and 22 has this testimony of Jesus. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. That is not cultural imperialism. That's revelation. For the Jews, the temple was the center of worship. Three or maybe four times a year, people would congregate there because this was the special intensive meeting place of the divine. So intense might the Shekinah glory be that the priests could not stand in its presence. They had to scatter and flee. At other times, sacrifices by God's own teaching were to be administered and offered up there. But 600 years before, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, a new covenant, a new way of meeting God was being prophesied. And in the very prophecy of that, the old way of meeting God became obsolete. Listen to Hebrews 8. He has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete? Obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we are at a hinge of history, a turning point, where the conditions of geographical boundaries of meeting God intensively in a place, in a locale, is going to change. Just two chapters before, in the second chapter of John, at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, John underscores the point immediately after the, his first miracle in, uh, in Cana, changing the water into wine. Immediately following that, Jesus identifies himself as the temple. He is the new meeting place between God and humanity. He is the great sacrifice between God and sinners. God has made himself manifest in Jesus Christ, the word Become flesh. Jesus, the human face of God for all the world. Here's the gospel. In the presence of Jesus, this woman, and we with her, are brought into the very presence of God, not any longer in a place or by proxy, but in a person. 
This is the hinge of history. The new covenant. Worshippers released from a style of worship and focused on the temple and replaced by the living Christ. Without a temple in sight, we are to offer ourselves to the living God. In verses 25 and 26, the story moves on to a climax. The woman you have just heard her say, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus very simply and definitively says, He who is before you is the Messiah. It is I. William Temple, years ago, defined worship this way. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. We could paraphrase that by saying it is the response of all that is in us to all that he is. It is all that we are reacting to all that he rightly is. The word that appears ten times in this passage and throughout the New Testament for worship is proskuneo. It means to kiss forward or to prostrate oneself. It means to find and to reveal and to to orient oneself towards that which is of ultimate value and ultimate worth. Worship has to do with recognizing the true value of something despite all its outward appearances. My sister had a rag doll named Mr. Brown. He was patched and repaired over his whole body. One of his eyes had been replaced with a button which was of a slightly different color and a different size which gave him a quizzical look. Uh, His skin had been rubbed threadbare. Uh, He looked more like a rag itself than a rag doll. But anyone that knew my sister knew that Mr. Brown which was his name, was of inestimable worth to her. My sister was six years older than me. I really don't have memories of, of... I have memories of Mr. Brown because he had a prominent place in the house, but but not so much my sister at this level in her life. But one of our family stories was the visitor came over and trying to make a time with the young lady. I said, well, why do you call your doll Mr. Brown? And my sister looked up to him, so the family story goes, with quizzical, amazing eyes and said... Because that's his name. (laughs) Um, We are God's ragdolls, intrinsically of little worth, of little value, but loved to life by him. Worship is that which we put inestimable value upon. We have been drawn near by the blood of Christ, and worship is valuing the world aright. Now, um, for my next section, I want to speak in a paradox. A paradox is where two seemingly contradictory things are both right. 
And the best way to affirm the truth is to say them both at the same time. So I'm going to do that and possibly speak uh, out of both sides of my mouth. And I'll use the German word for worship to do that, Gottesdienst, Gottesdienst. And it's impossible to know how exactly to translate that. It could be accurately translated either our service to God or God's service to us. And those are the two things I want to camp on for just a few moments. In the first place, Gottesdienst, our worship service, is our service to God. Worship is not what we receive. It's what we give. Evelyn Underhill, writing in 1928 to a conference of Church of England clergy, said, We are drifting towards a religion which, consciously or unconsciously, keeps its eye on humanity rather than deity. I think that's a great statement. Let's hear it again. 1928. We are drifting towards a religion which, consciously or unconsciously, keeps its eye on humanity rather than deity. And now almost, almost exactly 100 years later, which of us would not agree that has pretty much come true? I wonder if you remember several years ago, if you were here, we had a special seminar on the church called Cat and Dog Theology. And it's Central conceit was, you remember, dogs say, you walk me, you feed me, you love me. You must be God. And cats say, you walk me, you feed me, you love me. I must be God. (laughs) We are such a consumer society, such a pragmatic society, such a self-centered society that we tend to turn everything to ourselves Christians, though, are called to be worshipers, worth givers to God. So on the one hand, God is the object of our worship. We do not evaluate worship on the basis of what it does for us. We do not come to receive something. We do not come to get a blessing. We don't come asking how it's going to lift us up, how it's going to meet my needs, how it's going to give me a good feeling, how it's going to inspire me how it's going to bless me. To do that is to substitute subjective affection for objective trust. We come to give to God, to worship Him. He is the object. God's deanst. Our service to God. Now I want to move just in the opposite direction. Worship also is God's service to us. It is not insignificant that On Sunday mornings, we call these worship services. And Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself gives to everyone life and breath and everything. Mark 10.45 reads, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Whatever else a worship service is, it must first and foremost mean to be served by God. 
God serves us by giving life and breath and everything about himself that goes to the deepest recesses of our hearts. We worship first and foremost by thirsting and hungering after God above all things. And that means that we worship first and foremost by being served by God, by having our hungers met and our thirst slaked. It is a worship service because the worship starts with God serving us with what we so desperately need, namely himself. Therefore, the basic attitude of worship on Sunday morning is not to come with our hands full to give to God, but with our hands empty to receive from him. One of my favorite authors, Annie Dillard, says that we are like beggars with empty cups stretching out beneath the waterfall of his grace. What a moving picture. What we receive in worship is God, not entertainment. We ought to come hungry before him. We need to come crying as a deer pants for the flowing springs. So my soul pants for thee, O God. The best worship, the truest worship, the deepest worship is from the overflow of unabashed delight in the Lord. There's something absolutely winsome about the witness of a man or a woman who is absolutely full of the delight and joy of the Lord. Now, if we do those things, we find that worship ennobles, ennobles the life we live. In worship, we are given our truest self, our best self. What's the characteristic of some of the dogs are worshiping in a God-centered worship this morning? What is the characteristic of the most cramped, driest, least expansive, uh, most life-sapping souls you know? I want to suggest that one characteristic is that they praise so little, maybe nothing at all. Look at the people that you like to be around the most. They enjoy life. They find something constantly to praise. They overlook flaws. They praise books and plays, and they praise the day, and they praise the weather, they praise other people, they praise you. If you've ever met someone who has never known real friendship or never known real love or never read a really good book, you know a life that's crippled. They've lost some of their humanity. But that's just a shadow of what the kind of crippling is that comes from people that have not met their creator and the living God. When We lose our lives to the living God. We become enabled to praise others. It releases in our souls all kinds of praise. You find the world a gorgeous place. You find something to praise in everything. Because of your ability to give God his worth, you're able to praise others. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you want to see what worship is really going to be like when we get before him, imagine yourself to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by That delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves, flows out from us incessantly again in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy is no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness of a mirror is separable from the brightness it sheds. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing, glorifying and enjoying. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Worship transforms life. Uh, David Maines, about 30 years ago, wrote a a children's trilogy that I have always loved. in its trifold fashion, it's called Kingdom Tales. And the first volume is called Tales of the Kingdom. Uh, and it uh, sets up an imaginary world, much as the Narnia Chronicles do. And in it, there's a, it pictures worship as a circle of sacred fire. And the denizens of the kingdom go and they pass through the flames. And as they pass through and go into the center, they become real. They become themselves. Sometimes the king of the kingdom comes visibly. He comes up to the fire as a a beggar, an almsman, and he goes inside as a beggar king. And one of the tales and tales of the kingdom, there's a uh, young orphan girl named Dirty who lives in the king's pigsties. And at the conclusion of that parable, she, uh, Dirty, is taken by one of the denizens, one of the believers in the king named Mercy, uh, through the sacred flames. They come up to the flames, and before they pass through, they say, to the king, to the restoration. And then they go inside for the celebration of worship. In uh, this particular parable about dirty, she cries out, it's no use, it's no use, she cries. The king isn't coming. She has seen... uh, The king heals someone, and that day she's afraid he's not going to come, and she has come to give herself to him and to see if he could help her condition. But it's no use, she cries. The king isn't coming. He's the one I must see. No one else can make me clean. With that, mercy took Dirty in through the circle of sacred fire they passed through, and the girl, Dirty, looked up into the unspeakable, Unspeakable beauty of the young Mercy, whose long blonde hair now brushed her waist. Mercy took the girl's hand and said, Let me tell you a wonderful secret. All the people of the kingdom know it. It's one of the first lessons they must learn. The king doesn't have to come in order for us to see him, he's always present. Dirty stopped crying. She looked at Mercy. I I don't understand. What do you mean? Listen, said Mercy. She, She held her finger to her mouth for silence. Listen, and you will hear him speak. Be still. He has something to say to you. Dirty wiped away her tears. She closed her eyes and listened as hard as she could. 
Yes, there was something. She could hear someone speaking. It was the voice of the beggar king. He was saying, come, come with me. Be my special guest at the banquet table. Dirty kept her eyes closed. His special guest. She could feel something pouring over her. It flowed down through her, starting with her head, then behind her eyes, all through the knots and gnarls of her insides. It was warm. It was gentle. It was fluid. Mercy whispered, It's King's love, Dirty. King's love. Dirty could hear the voice again. The king was laughing. Then he stopped and said, I'm so glad you'd rather have me than your pigs. The warm flood had reached her toes. Dirty felt as if she was being held by the king, just like the crippled girl. She felt his kiss. Mercy was right. You didn't have to see the king to be surrounded by the power of his love. Dirty heard music, the violinists and the harpists. Hands in one huge circle. Dirty wanted to dance and she wanted to sing and shout and she turned to Mercy. The king does love me. I'm clean. I'm clean. The king has made me clean. Mercy took her hand and drew her into the circle of dancers within the sacred flames. Someone took her other hand and the musicians began the beat and the girl knew the dance would begin slowly and then build and that the circle would turn into perfect order and then move faster and faster and faster. She knew the dance steps. She'd watched them many times. But she didn't know the subjects would all sing her song. From all around the dancing circle it rose. I'm clean. I'm clean. The king has made me clean. She's clean. She's clean. The king has made her clean. And the circle moved faster and faster and faster. And the subjects of the king sang and danced rejoicing. But no one sang any louder or danced any harder than Dirty, who had become Cleon, the clean one. So the pig girl left her pigs for the sake of the one she loved. And she became the clean one who had a tender place in her heart for all things ugly because she knew a king who could find something beautiful in every heap of garbage. Worship is nothing less and nothing other than falling in love with Jesus Christ with all that we have and all that we are. May it be so. Living and holy God, we are thankful that you call us into a celebration of your love and a dance which reflects your eternal dance of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. Maybe we surged and singed and changed and transformed by the sacred flame to the King, to the restoration. May that be our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.